you will now please open up in your Bibles to the final chapter of Ezra, Ezra chapter 10. And so we're going to do something kind of interesting today. We're going to read from Ezra 10 verses 18 through 44. But as I've mentioned before, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Jewish Bible, Hebrew Bible, is one book. And so we're actually going to read from the first four, three or four verses, the beginning of Nehemiah, and then the last verse of Nehemiah 1. And I think you'll understand why as we get to it. But for now, please stand. In doing so, we express our reverence for God's written word, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God endures forever. Let's hear it now together. Ezra 10 at verse 18. <clears throat> Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Messiah, Eletzer, Jerob, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Harim, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pashur, Elianai, Messiah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Josabad and Elisah, of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pethaliah, Judah, and Eliatzar, of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telum, and Uri, and of Israel, of the sons of Parash, Ramiah, Itziah, Malchiah, Mahiam, Eliatzar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Elianai, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zebab, and Aziza. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehonanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athlai. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheol, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Adna, Chalal, Benaiah, Masiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh, of the sons of Harim, Elitzer, Ishhiah, Malchiah, Shemaiah, Shimeam, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashum, Matani, Matatah, Zabad, Eliphat, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei, of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uel, Benaniah, Bediah, Chaluchi, Vaniah, Merimoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, Jasu, of the sons of Benui, Shimei, Shalimiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadabai, Shashai, Shirai, Azarel, Shemaiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Matatiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. All of these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Now please turn one page. I wonder if your hands are as sweaty as mine at the moment. <laughs> the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now come down to the bottom, 
the very last sentence of the chapter. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Oh Lord and our God, we come to your word and it stills us. It reminds us, O oh Lord, that uh, things in your word are high and above us, uh, not simply the content, but perhaps even at times the pronunciation. And Lord, it makes us feel small. But the gospel lifts us up to help us to see how big you are, how gracious you are, and how great is the story of your redemption. Help us now to see that story and to find our part in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's a saying that I imagine most of us in the room are fairly familiar with. It's something of a cliche. And the saying is this, all's well that ends well. Today we're looking at the end of the book of Ezra and finding our way transitioning into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, But if it's true to say all's well that ends well, the book of Ezra does not end well. In fact, as one author puts it, it's a not-so-happy ending. In fact, a a rather clunky ending. Uh, No great uh, reconciliation at the end. Uh, No beautiful resolve. The hero not riding off into the sunset uh, with his bride. Nothing of that effect. Not only does it not end on a beautiful high note, it ends with this rather long and cumbersome genealogy. But as I mentioned a little while ago, In the Jewish Bible, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are not two books, but one. We're going to treat them, in a certain sense, as such today. Uh, We are really, in a certain sense, not at the end of one book. We're in the middle of one book, and that's the way the Jewish Bible would have us to read it. And so we'll look at the transition together, somewhat zooming back, uh, zooming out a little bit, to understand the book of Ezra in the light of the bigger book, that is the story that actually does end well the love story of the gospel of God's grace. So you have an outline in your bulletin and the three points that we'll use to guide our way through the sermon. Let's begin by thinking about the guilt of God's people. Well, as I mentioned, and as you probably felt, the ending of the book of Ezra is kind of a dud. I mean, what do you think about that long list of names? I'm going to say the hardest genealogy I've ever read uh, and, and it's rather anticlimactic, isn't it? Who, who ends a book? Who ends a story uh, with, with 110 names, long Hebrew names? It's just a really uh, weird sort of ending. You're used to the phrase Hall of Fame. The book of Ezra ends not with a Hall of Fame, but rather a Wall of Shame. This is the list of people who are guilty of the sins described earlier in the chapter. These are the men some of high stature, some of low stature, who who married outside the covenant. Uh, This is literally a list of people who are guilty and have been publicly called out for their guilt. How would you like to be remembered that way in history? Many of us uh, would love to be remembered in generations to come, but not like this, not for what we've done wrong, not for failures in our lives. Generations would literally remember these names for their guilt and for their shame. And the list itself is at least a little bit intriguing. There are a few threads that we ought to pull from the list that helps us understand not simply why Ezra ends here, but why Nehemiah begins the way that it does. There are about 110 names given. It's a a long list. And in 
these 110 names, uh, we find later that this uh, is basically what gives the structure to several months of dealing with all of these men, their families, their cases. In other words, these 110 men are dealt with over 75 days. That comes out to about one and a half cases per day. In other words, these men are all put on trial. And they're brought before the elders and leaders of the land and their situations closely uh, examined before Ezra to figure out uh, what will be done. And when you think about it, it's sort of slow and torturous. It, It is like a slow, painful surgery without anesthetic for all to see. 17 priests are named, six Levites, one singer, three gatekeepers, and 84 laity. It is quite a cast of characters from the top to the bottom of Israel. To say it differently, from those who were servants in the temple to those who were to benefit from the temple's ministry. What is it it showing us? What is it telling us? Well, once again, the holy race, as Israel is called in the book of Ezra, was in an unholy place spiritually. They were guilty individually, and they were guilty as a whole. It was John Donne who said famously, though few of us know it, that no man is an island. And that's exactly what you see in Ezra chapter 10. All of these individuals who sin have contributed to the corporate guilt of the people. The sins of a few, that is about 110, is a small portion of the remnant who has returned, but they have corrupted the rest. So to quote what the Bible says elsewhere, a little leaven has leavened the whole lump. Sin is like a seed. But once it takes root, it grows and it grows quickly. And many of us know that right now uh, there's a lot of beautiful things growing outside. There are also a lot of annoying things growing outside. Uh, Weeds that you can't get to because of the rocks that hide them. Things that won't uh, willingly come up out of the ground because they've already taken root deeper than we would like. That's exactly what has happened here in Ezra 10. Sin has taken root among the people of God, and now they're attempting to deal with it. But what are the consequences? These 110 men spread out over two and a half months of drama. Well, one thing we ought to learn is that sin has consequences. How pleasant of a thought is that? Sin has consequences, but you see that so clearly illustrated here. Uh, These who are named are named as guilty, declared guilty in the sight of God, in the sight of man. But it's not simply a legal declaration. Uh, Sin has also wreaked havoc upon families. This is a horrible scene. One commentator notes that if you ask any pastor what's the hardest thing about the ministry, he would say broken families, marriage drama. Ezra 10 is a long list of broken families and marriage drama where sin has wreaked havoc upon the people of God. Hearts are broken. Relationships are torn. And as you turn, not tear, the page into Nehemiah chapter 1, which is 12 years later, if you're wondering what the distance is, the time lapse between Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 1, it's 12 years. Once again, the people of God are what? They're in trouble. They're in need of a hero. Nehemiah 1.3 makes the point very clearly. When Nehemiah asks, when he inquires, how are they doing? The answer, they are in trouble. They are enveloped in shame. 
the walls are destroyed. Those three words really sum up the effect of sin quite well. Trouble, shame, destruction. Individually, collectively, the leaven has leavened the lump. This is what sin does. It is the wage that sin pays. That's exactly where we find the people of God. Corporate guilt has now <clears throat> found them in corporate trouble, shame, and destruction. And this is a, this is a sad but sobering reality. Uh, in a certain sense, you might even say it like this, although I don't love it. I don't, I don't think you do either. But in a certain sense, sin is the glue that binds the book of Ezra to the book of Nehemiah. Sin is the glue. Where they end in 10, you see them reap. Where they have sown in 10, they reap in Nehemiah 1. That's the point. And if you, again, zoom out, you would agree, I imagine, that sin is often the glue that binds many of the Bible's pages together. It, it's, it's the sort of, uh, it's the dirty thread running through the back of the whole book. The people of God keep sinning. And breaking their promises. But the good news is, God remains faithful. And in spite of them, he keeps keeping his promises. So the gospel is the real glue that holds the story and these two books together. And so we'll begin to think about that now in our second point. The grace of God's salvation. If you've been along with us uh, for the journey through the book of Ezra, uh, we should have learned a little bit about ourselves. And we should have learned... A little bit about God. What have we learned about ourselves? What do we learn about people in the book of Ezra? Well, that is important, but we also need to think about what we learn about God Himself. John Calvin had just a wonderful line. You've heard it, I would imagine, many times in this church, but that in order for us to know God well and truly, we have to know ourselves well and truly. And in order for us to know ourselves well and truly, We have to know God well and truly. The two go hand in hand. While the Israelites have been faithless, God has remained faithful. And something very important that we learn about God in these books is that God works through means. And I want to to drill down on that idea, God working through means. When Israel sinned, which they did many times, and they did again in the book of Ezra, You notice what God did not do. He did not send fire down from heaven, nor did he, if you will, come down himself when he brought judgment. But rather, he used means, and the means that he used were people. It's sort of uh, spiritual irony that the very people that Israel abandoned God for become the means of God's judgment on his people. That's exactly the way it happened earlier, uh, even through the Exodus. That's exactly how Israel got into the exile in the first place. The very nations that Israel flirted with became the means of their judgment by the hand of God. That's exactly what God told them would happen. If you go into the land and start flirting with the nations and give your heart away to the nations, by those very same nations, I will bring judgment upon you. God uses means. He's free to do whatever he wants but he is also free to work through the means that he wants. And so God uses the means of people. This is how Israel's trouble continues. If the 
nations around them uh, were that which Israel flirted with, and then God used his judgment upon them. Here at the end of Nehemiah, and this is why Ezra, excuse me, the end of Ezra, uh, this is why Ezra gets so upset, is the people have gone right back at it. The very same thing that led them into exile in the first place, here they are again flirting with that very same, same sin and temptation. The nations have truly become a thorn in their side. But isn't this, again, how sin so often works? Turn away from it, as we should. And then there's that proverb that we quoted last week. It's a really boyish proverb. As a dog returns to his vomit, so Israel here has returned to her sins. But God also works through means, not simply to act out judgment, but also in terms of reconciliation. And so we see there uh, in Ezra chapter 10 that those who have sinned against God bring a ram offering for their sins. This is a means that God had appointed that sin could be atoned for. God appointed a means, not simply for judgment, but also for atonement. But notice that that ram offering, if you will, uh, that that offering up for sin, a sacrifice, did not fully forgive and satisfy but rather it was a promise of delayed judgment. It's kind of like, not that I encourage this, but if you make a partial payment on a credit card, it doesn't remove the debt, it just delays the debt. But it also keeps growing, doesn't it? So these ram offerings were like a partial payment on a credit card that Israel would never be able on their own ultimately to pay off. But if God works through the means of executing his judgment through people, if God works through means of uh, accepting sacrifice, as he did with the rams in Ezra chapter 10, how do we see the gospel come into the picture? Which is a pretty important question at the end of not only a difficult book, but an even more difficult genealogy, a wall of shame. The gospel is made most evident in this book, not through the sacrifice of rams, but ultimately through, the God working, through God working through the means of raising up Ezra and even Nehemiah. So it's very important to see that while the ministry of Ezra now begins to fade to the background and sin is like glue that binds these two books together, there is another glue that is even stronger and is God raising up men that he uses as means to save and deliver his people. In other words, against the backdrop of a very guilty Israel at the end of Ezra 10 comes another hero figure at the beginning of Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah himself, who comes in the context of Israel's trouble, destruction, and shame. It's in that context that God raises up a man who cares for Israel. That all by itself should be astounding because God has raised up men to bring judgment upon Israel. And now the very same God raises up men to bring care and compassion. When the man-made walls of Jerusalem are broken down, God raises up another man who will stand in that gap. And that is Nehemiah. Ezra's book must give way to Nehemiah's, just as Ezra's plan to deal with sin must give way to God's plan. In other words, Ezra's attempt, as we saw last week, to deal with the sins of the people of God was not a satisfying plan. Not only was it not a satisfying plan, it clearly did not do away with the sins of the people. 
for all of their sin and all of their shame. And that's what we see at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1. But there's something uh, quite wonderful. Looking at this for a little while, I'm trying to decide how to approach Nehemiah chapter 1. There's this long, beautiful prayer, and we'll deal with that entirely by itself next week. It's really a great prayer. You should be excited to get into that prayer. You should be. But there's a, there's a last little word at the end of Nehemiah 1 that is just fantastic. Easy to miss, but so much there. The last sentence, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And I skipped over the long prayer that begins in verse 4. But if you wed together the first few things that are said about Nehemiah in verses 1 through 3, and the last thing that's said about him at the end of this chapter, you get a sense of what God is ultimately doing in the big picture with these two books that are one, these two stories that are one, these two different, if you will, heroes that come to save Israel that paint a portrait of the one. This is very interesting, at least to me, and fitting that Nehemiah should be a cupbearer, especially when we think about the fact that God uses means. And why is that? What's the big deal? Why are we even told? Why why should we even care about this? Because the one who cares for Israel is a cupbearer. Cupbearer is actually a very important position, especially in the ancient Near East. It is arguably one of the most trusted positions in the kingdom because the life of the king's hand is literally in the hand of the cupbearer. The Persians were famous for their winemaking. Most of you know that the topography of the ancient Near East, this portion of the world, Persia, where they were, is very much like Southern California. It's hot, it's dry, but the dirt is actually pretty fertile and it makes for fantastic wine. Not just good wine or that cheap stuff that you get on a separate row that's not even like with the other wines. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The real good stuff, the high price stuff, that's what they made in Persia. It's one of the things that the Persians were famous for and that the kings celebrated. But not only did they have great wine in abundance, they also had an abundance of enemies. And one of the most popular ways, one of the most uh, subversive yet easy ways to get at a king was to poison him. And so secular records tell us about countless attempts to kill the kings of Persia by poisoning their wine. Story after story of failed attempts and even sometimes successful attempts at killing these ancient Near Eastern kings through the drinking of poison wine. So what does this make then the cupbearer? In some ways, it makes him a very important official, a man of prominence, a man of station, a man of integrity, a man that the king has to trust with his life in his hands. A man who would give his life for the king. So Nehemiah, uh, though we're not told a lot about him, we get a very quick portrait that this man was trusted, he was highly stationed, And he was the king's right-hand man. And it should be no small thing that the Persian king's cupbearer should be a son of Abraham. If you want to say it this way, the king's savior is a son of Abraham. But this 
Nehemiah, son of Abraham, was also a man sent by God, not simply to protect the life of the king, but to protect the life of the people. And so Nehemiah is introduced to us as a man who cares about and has compassion for a sinful people of Israel. It's not simply the king's cup that Nehemiah will bear, it's the cup of the people. And this is what the book of Nehemiah ultimately zoom out wants us to see the story within the story, the story that unites the two stories and the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What's the point? It's a beautiful point, if you want to drink it in. Pardon the pun. God cares about his people. God has compassion even for a sinful people. It is God ultimately, and not Nehemiah, who not only cares for his people, but who can actually save them. Ezra and Nehemiah come into the story as would-be heroes, would-be protectors. But if you read through the whole book, it'd be a good time for you to do that as we start now, the book of Nehemiah. If you read through the whole book, as kind and compassionate as Nehemiah is, By the end of the book, he's not only a sinful man, he's also a very frustrated and frustrating leader who does uh, some pretty provocative things. Ezra pulled out his own hair. Nehemiah will pull out the hair of the people, literally. That's like not a metaphor. This guy was rough. Nehemiah is not the perfect hero. Nehemiah is not the perfect savior. We looked last week at a very questionable plan that flowed from the lips of Ezra himself. So if Ezra and Nehemiah themselves are not the ultimate savior and hero of the story, how then will God manifest his compassion, his care, and actually do it? How will God affect his compassion, say it differently, by what means shall God save his people? Well, the answer is through another cupbearer. Through another cupbearer. How fitting it is today, I was actually kind of excited, that this should be a Lord's Supper Sunday, and before you is a cup. And you will be holding it. Before us, together as a church, is a cup. And we shall partake of it together. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the compassion of God. We give thanks, but why? What do we have to be thankful for? It's actually a really good question. Because Jesus is better than Nehemiah and better than Ezra, but Jesus did something that they did, Nehemiah in particular, and that is he drank the bitter cup. Jesus took the bitter cup first from the king so that the king could then drink out of it. Jesus took the bitter cup out of your hands that you too might find a cup put back in. To say it differently, he drank sin's poison for you. He was swallowed by death as he endured God's judgment for us. But there's a grand difference between Jesus and Nehemiah the cupbearer, though they have some things in common. Jesus is perfect. Therefore, Jesus could do what Nehemiah could not do, and as you'll see in the book, uh, will not do, and actually do it successfully. Jesus can actually deliver his people, beloved. Jesus can actually deliver you from trouble, shame, and destruction. That's what a hero does. That's what a savior does. That's what Jesus, the cupbearer, has done for us. 
And again, unlike Ezra and Nehemiah, Jesus draws us into a story that actually does have a happy ending, which we all actually want. Everyone actually wants a happy ending. Where would Hollywood and Disney be if all of their movies lacked happy endings? Never mind. But when you think about it, what it is that we long for the least may be what we actually need the most. Because Jesus, in order to bring us to a truly happy ending, he does so not by escaping death, but rather by passing through it and triumphing over it. And this is very, very important. The Bible paints this perpetual picture of sin and its consequences, its ravaging wages, which is ultimately and always death. That's why here again, we find Israel in trouble, shame, and destruction, because this is the wages of sin. And God's compassion is such that Jesus himself will not simply drink from the cup, but be swallowed up in death. But the happy ending comes not then, the happy ending comes through his triumph over death and his resurrection. Where does the Christian find his or her happy ending? Where does the story end? Well, it ultimately is found in the resurrection. This brings us to our final point. We'll be on it for a few minutes. The gratitude we ought to have. Again, as I've mentioned, zoom out a little bit and contemplate uh, the big picture application of the two books at once. Back to our theme, happy ending. How do you define that? How do you define a happy ending? Everybody wants one. That's why the movies are all framed. They always come back, right? The drama introduced at the beginning is somehow fixed, and eventually they're kissing at the end, and the sunset is lovely, right? This is how they all sort of work. But is that how we define a happy ending? Is it in the phrase, all's well that ends well? What does that really actually mean? We just transition from one book of the Bible to another, from one story to another, but really they're one story and one book. What should we learn from them? Well, pause and think about this for a moment. Uh, where is it that Israel went wrong? It's not a pleasant question. It's not the one you want to think about, but it's still helpful. The people of Israel went wrong, not just by disobeying God. It's not that simple. Uh, far more importantly, more deeply, their real failure was that they were not satisfied with God. Why did they go after the foreign women of the land? Why did they go into exile? It's not simply in a flat sense that they broke the commands, it's that their hearts were far from God. They were not satisfied with God and his gifts. This is what set the stage for their temptation. And it's the same thing for us. Sin has greatest access to our hearts when we are the least satisfied with God. That's when we were vulnerable. And that's where Israel blew it. It made God jealous and it made God angry. God equated their love for the foreign nations with idolatry, his language, not mine. And it's the right way to put it. They were not satisfied with God and so they replaced God with things that they thought would satisfy them only to find out that not only did they not find their satisfaction in the things of the world, it actually incurred the anger and wrath of God. 
And again from last week, in this respect, they and we are just like their father Adam for what the heart desired, the hands acquired. This is exactly what sin does. It allures, it captivates, it offers something more satisfying than God himself. Pause and think about it. When you boil it all down, that's exactly what sin does. It offers us something more satisfying, supposedly, than God himself. And in the end, what do you have? You have exactly what you see at the beginning of Nehemiah 1. Trouble, shame, and destruction. Sin offers it all, and then it takes everything away. So we pause, zoom out, not simply taking a look at the people of God in Ezra or Nehemiah, but at our own lives, at our own hearts, ask the honest question. It is in many ways a searching question of this story. Are we satisfied with God? Is he enough? Or are we like Israel flirting with the things of the land? Things that offer to take his place with a smile and a kiss, but will they truly satisfy in the end or leave us brokenhearted? Will they leave us like Israel in chapter 10, not simply brokenhearted, but listed publicly on a wall of shame? Ezra 10 is a public call out. It's really an embarrassing chapter. It's not simply hard to read. It's hard to read. It's heartbreaking. And that's the lesson that draws from the book. Sin comes with consequences. It never tells you about those consequences up front. It hides that. But then comes the price, and that cannot be hidden. And what does it do? It tears down walls. What does it do? It buries us in shame. Where does it leave us? Always in trouble. But in the midst of this, what do we have to be thankful for? If Ezra and Nehemiah have taught us something about ourselves, the sinfulness of the people of God in the text, like a mirror showing us the sinfulness of the people of God that we see in our own mirrors, it teaches even more about God. Because a remarkable thread that keeps returning is that God keeps returning. God keeps coming back to his people. God keeps coming back to rescue. Let me pause and think about it. Who is it that keeps coming back to rescue the people of God? Who is it who keeps raising up heroes to save them from one story to the next, from one book to the next, from Ezra to Nehemiah to the next? Who is it that really cares about the people of God? Who is it who really cares about you? Who loves you most perfectly, eternally, and is alone able to truly satisfy? Who is it that can say that he has a love that not only will never end, but will not let you go? What well, is God? And is he alone who can truly satisfy us? God is the hero of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, not Ezra or Nehemiah. They are simply understudies, imitators at best, supporting cast on a stage set where God gets all the glory and it's God who rides off into the sunset, if you will, with his rescued bride. That they would be ever satisfied together. It is God who gets the glory and it is God who deserves our hearts. The story of Ezra concludes with a really not so happy ending. 
And I want to just make a, a, a very brief but clear gospel point. If you are not in Christ, if you think Ezra 10 is an unhappy ending, if you are not in Christ, you actually don't want to know how this story ends. Because it doesn't simply end with a genealogy and a wall of shame. It ends in eternity apart from God, and there will not be means that God uses for his judgment in eternity. It will be his own person in wrath. And so you should repent, and you should believe, because by God's grace, your story is not done. And the proof of that is you're here listening to me preach it to you today. But if you're in Christ, let's go back to the beginning. How does the story end? And for the people of God, does it end well? Is there a happy ending for the people of God? Well, the answer is fully yes. But that yes comes not through uh, the narrow, simple, fading details of life in this little broken world or these little broken stories as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, The happy ending for us is the same as it is for the hero of the story. That is for Jesus, who was given as a reward for his obedience, for his life and his death offered sacrificially for his people. He was not given longer life or better life in this world. His happy ending is eternal life, restored to the presence of his father, where there he shall enjoy forever the presence of his bride in glory. Beloved, that is your happy ending, no matter how happy or not so happy your present may be. No matter what happens in the pages in between now and the final chapter, So what can this world, when you boil it all down, what can this world really offer you that can take the place of God? What apple or idol can you fix your heart on that will actually satisfy when God has not only given you all things in his son, but he's given you himself. He is your reward, your eternal satisfaction, your everlasting treasure, the greatest of all friends, and beloved, if you are in Christ, you are promised and have already begun to receive not simply a happy ending, eternal life in him. What could possibly be any better than that? Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and and the neat little way in which these two books are actually one. It is a curious thing that... Around the second century, these two, these, this one book was divided into two. And such it is, O Lord, often this is what we tend to do. We tend to divide things that were meant to remain united. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to learn the story, not simply of Ezra, but the combined story of Ezra and Nehemiah. That sin is always there and is always making offers and promises, but it never truly delivers It may give brief momentary satisfaction, but in the end, it is like a thief. It robs, it kills, it destroys. And the people of God, corporately and collectively, endured the wages of it. They were in trouble. They were ashamed. Their walls were destroyed. Help us to recognize the Lord uh, with honest sobriety that this is the wages of sin. And therefore, help us to rejoice all the more that in Jesus we have an even better Savior than Ezra or Nehemiah. We have been made a part of an even more beautiful story that truly does have a happy ending. And knowing, O Lord, that these things are fixed and assured for us in the heavens, help us. 
to avoid the temptations, the flirtations of this world. Help us to find in our God our great satisfaction. Might he be the apple of our eyes and the delight of our heart. And might we even see that you are a God who continues to use means. And as we together today are able to enjoy the means of grace, help us to do so with great satisfaction and great thankfulness in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.